This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Cursed Painting For the first time since the great coffee-tea conflict of 2019, we here at the Word of the Week are using we to refer to both of us. See, most of the time when we say we, we don't mean we. We mean I. Because the we in question is written by the we that is me, the anchor GM, the writer and researcher for this show. Not the we that is he, Fiddleback. I cram words into the mouth of the show's editor, producer, and performer. Because his curse as editor, producer, and performer is to serve as a mouthpiece for other people's words. After, you know, cleaning them up and making them sound gooder which is how, every once in a while, he manages to sneak a we in there that means him, not me. Of course, he sometimes manages to break free of his prison and raise a ruckus to assuage his soul, which is why we wrote about tea. And, and it's a darn good thing. All that said, it is normal that the topics for the show are the angry GMs to choose. Often about an hour before the deadline for the script, or more usually these days, about four hours after the deadline for the script. But we do sometimes plan things together. For example, it was Fiddleback and the show's number one fan, his mother, who inspired the spooky topics for this October. She thought it would be interesting to do ghost ships, and today's topic, haunted paintings. She was right, by the way. The reason we bring this up now, and yes, I am now reverting back to the illusion that Fiddleback and I are of one mind, in the same sense that a ventriloquist is of one mind with what I will politely refer to as his performing partner, the reason we bring this up is because we are actually different people. We sometimes see things in very different ways. Yeah, for example, some people might think that you can write all the episodes you want, but if they don't get produced... Well, let us explain. After days of researching, as you will learn, we hit what proved to be a complete dead end. It became clear that what one of us had in mind for haunted paintings was different from what the other had in mind. Also, if this is your first episode of the show, welcome and fair warning. There are a lot of prerequisites to understanding this episode. You've got the callbacks and in-jokes of the preceding paragraphs to worry about, and also the fact that this is part four in a series of episodes about ghosts and haunts. But we digress. Haunted paintings. It turns out any internet search will turn up dozens and dozens of lists for haunted paintings, like the five most haunted paintings in the world, or seven cursed paintings people refuse to hang in their homes. Topping out almost every list, is one painting in particular. The Hands Resist Him. Painted by American artist William Stoneham in 1972 as part of a contract with the Feingarten Galleries in Beverly Hills, California. And if you even glance at the painting, you can recognize at once that it's a great candidate for a haunting or curse. First, there's this stony-faced little boy with a big forehead and dark eyes. He stares straight out of the painting, right at you. Second, next to him, a full-size standing porcelain doll with empty eye sockets. She holds some sort of toy thing with wires coming out of it. 
Third, behind the pair is a dark glass-paned door, against which disembodied hands press, emerging from the void beyond. If you're at all susceptible to the heebies and or the jeebies, please do not go looking for this painting. Now, the artist Stoneham did eventually explain the painting and what it all means. The title comes from a poem his wife at the time wrote. The line in question is, The hands resist him like the secret of his birth. And Stoneham said the painting describes his experiences as an adopted child. The child in the painting, he says, he modeled on his own five-year-old likeness. The hands pressing against the door? Other lives, with the door as a barrier between their worlds. The doll girl is the guide between those worlds. Whatever that means. We're not sure what the toy thing with the weird wires is. But look, creepy imagery alone does not a haunted painting make. Otherwise, ghosts would crawl out of every Hieronymus Bosch or Edvard Munch painting. There's more to this story than the basics we've explained so far. That's only scene setting. In 1974, the painting is on display at the Fine Garden Gallery. Famed art critic Henry Seldes of the Los Angeles Times sees it and reviews it. After that, John Marley, the actor, purchases the painting. He's best known for his performance in the 1970 film Love Story and the 1972 The Godfather movie. He plays Jack Woltz, a film producer who crosses the Corleone family. Anyway, strangely, the owner of the gallery then dies. And then Henry Seldes dies. And then John Marley dies. It becomes clear that the painting carries a curse. Everyone whose hands it passes through dies. The painting lays forgotten for years after that until it ends up posted on the online auction site eBay in the year 2000. The new owners are trying to sell the painting, and the listing includes an ominous warning that the painting is not for the faint of heart, nor for those who don't want to get wrapped up in the supernatural. The painting, the sellers claim, is extremely very haunted. The owners say that the boy and the doll come to life at night and fight each other in the painting. The painting scares the dickens out of the couple's four-year-old daughter in whose room they hung the extremely very haunted painting. Which, given that we've seen the painting, is some top-quality parenting. Right up there with that clown marionette the parents and poltergeist put in the kid's bedroom. Anyway, the couple sets up a motion-sensing camera in the room one night, and according to the listing, the boy flees right out of the painting, straight into their daughter's bedroom. Anyway, that's how the story goes. Because, as is always the case with haunted objects, a bit of revisionist history is happening. See, every time an extremely very haunted object turns up, people comb through its history. And any time anyone who came into contact with the object suffers misfortune, it's attributed to the object's malevolent spirit or curse. Henry Seldes, the critic who reviewed the painting, did indeed die. He committed suicide. Four years after he reviewed the painting, after a divorce, and after undergoing treatment for recurring bouts of depression. And John Marley? 
he died from complications during heart surgery. At the age of 76, a full decade after he bought the painting. So the painting wasn't in any particular hurry to kill anyone, it seems. Also, for a curse, it sure went to great lengths to ensure you could explain the deaths in mundane ways. Many have suggested the whole haunting story was a marketing ploy to drive up the auction price. I know, we're as shocked as you are. It kind of worked, but also kind of didn't. It worked in that the listing went viral and got tens of thousands of views. But it didn't in that the painting fetched about a thousand bucks from an unknown buyer in Michigan, who reportedly locked the painting in storage, and refuses to sell it despite receiving many lucrative offers. That said, it did prove to be something of a windfall for Stoneham. He has received several private commissions for sequels to the cursed painting, including one prequel entitled The Hands Invent Him. It depicts things from the other side of the door. It also proved a windfall for author Darren Kyle O'Neill. He published a very fictionalized tale of the sale of the painting and its history, along with a serial killer for good measure. Now, as we said, you can find a lot of stories about supposed haunted paintings with ease. There's The Crying Boy by Bruno Braglin Amadio. It's a painting which has survived several house fires that rumor says it caused. There's The Anguished Man. The anonymous artist, they say, mixed his own blood into the paint and then committed suicide. And then there's the relatively tame by comparison Edvard Munch piece. No, not the scream. The Dead Mother which commemorates the passing of Monk's mother from tuberculosis. That one never killed anyone or burned anything down. It's the creepy eyes of the anguished girl standing next to her dead mother that causes the problems. They appear to follow the viewer around the room. And it sometimes makes the sounds of bedsheets rustling. But here's where the misunderstanding between the two wees begins. These were the sorts of things Fiddleback was thinking of, cursed and haunted paintings. We had something else in mind, though, because it tickled our memories. We remembered a recurring element that cropped up many times in many video games we played as a high schooler. We became obsessed. We had to run down the deep secret influence behind those recurring elements. Even when we turned up nothing to show any sort of deep connection, we still insisted on spending days and days scrambling and searching for anything, anything to make a good episode. And that turned out to be a bad idea. Let us explain. In our younger days, we were a fan of role-playing and action-adventure video games. The ones on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in particular. We played all the classics, but it never occurred to us until now. There were a lot of games in which people got trapped in paintings or something similar. The most iconic example we remember occurs in Square's acclaimed Final Fantasy III. At least that's what the name was when we played it. It was actually the sixth game in the Final Fantasy series, a series we have discussed before. Acclaimed by critics and a commercial success, FF3 is one of the best games in the series. 
Thanks to the Dragon Quest series, fantasy role-playing games caught on in Japan in a big way, but Nintendo struggled to make console RPGs anything more than a niche genre in America. They wouldn't come into their own until the PlayStation era, but that's another story. The point is, Nintendo was wary of bringing Japanese role-playing games to America. RPGs are text and story intensive, it takes a lot of time and money to translate and localize them. And they didn't sell very well in America, so it was hard to justify the expense. That's why America never got translations of Final Fantasy 2 or 3, and 4 became 2 when it came to America. And that's why they skipped 5, and so 6 became 3. But there's this scene in Final Fantasy 3 which was very confusing to us, in part due to the poor translation. One of the characters has to paint a portrait of a beautiful magical spirit thing named Starlet, and she ends up trapped in the painting along with a demon. Then you have to kill the demon to free the spirit, and the demon's name is Chatternook, for some reason. Meanwhile, there's a series of games known, thanks to another bit of revisionist history, as the Quintet Trilogy. These are odd action-adventure RPGs, all developed by the now-defunct Japanese developer Quintet, published by Enix, who later merged with Square into the RPG powerhouse today known as Square Enix. The Quintet Trilogy was a series of three games, Soul Blazer, Illusion of Gaia, and Terranigma. Together with an earlier game, Act Razor, they deal with similar themes and ideas. They have certain gameplay elements in common, and they all referenced and called back to each other. But they were all very different games, and they weren't meant to be sequels or a trilogy. Retro gaming enthusiasts grouped them together after the fact, because of their similarities, the common developer, and their overlooked hidden gem status. Someday, we will find an excuse to explore them in more detail, but today is not that day. One of the common elements? In each game, there is a common trope of a spirit or soul or entire body trapped in a painting. When we started to think about it, we realized there are a lot of video games that use the same idea, paintings as traps for the soul or portals to other worlds, and we started to wonder what was up with that. We figured there had to be some myth or legend or story they were referencing. When something like that comes up over and over again, there's usually a long pedigree. It's usually drawing from a piece of classic literature or mythology. Now we've learned that the magical spirit Starlet was not actually Starlet in Final Fantasy VI. Her original name was Lakshmi. Square changed it for the North American release of the game. Nintendo of America had strict policies about real-world religious references in games. Nintendo of Japan didn't. Lakshmi is actually the Hindu goddess of wealth and good luck, and is the wife of Vishnu. Vishnu is an interesting figure in the Hindu faith. He's a representation, a sort of amalgam. He's made up of all sorts of different divine figures and local heroes. See, Hinduism is a very old religion, but it's more than that. It's a set of cultural values and traditions, some of which date back to between 4000 and 10,000 BCE. It came together as many disparate tribal people shared ideas and traditions. Around 1500 BCE, a group of nomadic people, the Aryans, migrated into present-day India. They were a large group, and they came across the Hindu Kush mountains from Central Asia. As they came into contact with other groups, their cultures and traditions commingled. 
As time went on, a unified set of traditions emerged. They codified these into four epic texts, the four Vedas. In 400 CE, the Sanskrit epic the Mahabharata was set down. It identified many different figures as incarnations of the deity Vishnu. Up to then, Vishnu had been a minor figure in the Vedas, but his prominence grew in the Mahabharata so that he became a principal figure of the faith. Now, what does this have to do with Lakshmi? Well, Lakshmi was Vishnu's wife. She followed him through many of his incarnations, taking on different forms herself. She is a major figure in the faith as well, and a focus of widespread worship by modern Hindus. She's especially prominent in the Jainist sect. She's also of surpassing beauty, which puts her at the center of many conflicts between gods and demons who all desire her. And that sort of explains why a man in Final Fantasy wanted to own her in the form of a painting, and why a demon tried to take control of her in the painting. But it doesn't explain the whole painting thing. What the heck was with the idea of a person trapped body and spirit in a painting? And why did it crop up in so many games? Of course, the obvious answer for anyone in the know is classic literature. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. You might know who Oscar Wilde was. He was pretty famous. A Scottish-born playwright and poet of late Victorian England. He moved in circles with some of the most celebrated European and American writers of his day. He was a proponent of the aesthetic movement, which proposed the pursuit of beauty was the highest virtue, overshadowing all others. Now, while Wilde made his name writing plays, he did write one novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. In the story, the titular Dorian Gray is a handsome, wealthy young man who is modeling for a painting one day. His friend is going on and on about how great the pursuit of new experiences for their own sake is. Hedonism. And Dorian is thinking about all this while a painting of him is being made. As it goes on, he laments how fleeting life is and how there isn't time to experience everything. Wouldn't it be great if the image in the painting could age while he stayed young and beautiful forever? And you never say things like that while someone is painting you. Soon thereafter, Dorian takes his friend's speech to heart. He begins pursuing a life of selfish hedonism and sexual debauchery. Every time he does something awful, the painting of him changes. It begins to reflect his selfishness and cruelty. He becomes consumed with the inner ugliness reflected in the painting and so becomes even more obsessed with burying himself in new experiences, and also semi-accidentally killing a person here and there, and blackmailing his friends into helping him hide the bodies, who then feel compelled to take their own lives. You know how it is. Now, this particular story was pretty scandalous to Victorian sensibilities, because Wilde detailed the various escapades of Dorian Gray in detail and Wilde himself admitted that he'd put a lot of his own desires in the story. The original story appeared as a serial in Lippincott's Monthly. There were a lot of letters to the editor of that publication taking exception. Wilde republished the story as a novel. He was so offended by the criticism he received that he included a scathing forward. In it, he went on about how art is neither moral nor immoral, 
how the artist needs to be free to pursue whatever he fancies in order for art to have any value, and about how people needed to stop projecting and also stop being jerks. And the combative attitude he took proved to be a bit of a mistake. See, it was an open secret that Oscar Wilde was homosexual. Everyone knew it. But Wilde got into an affair with a young man named Lord Alfred Douglas, whose father happened to be the Marquis of Queensbury. Marquis was not happy at all and made a very public accusation about Oscar Wilde being a sodomite. And there it would have sat. But Wilde was so angry about the public accusation that he decided to sue for libel. In essence, Wilde claimed the accusation was a lie intended to ruin his reputation. Lawyers for the Marquis were quick to react. They presented the steamiest passages from the picture of Dorian Gray and from poems Wilde had written and from love letters he'd written to Lord Douglas. More than enough to show that the Marquis wasn't actually making things up and so there was no grounds for libel. The case wasn't only dismissed. Due to the reaction to his previous works, the court declared Wilde guilty of gross indecency. He was jailed for two years. The sentence took its toll on Wilde and left him impoverished. He stopped writing and went into self-imposed exile. And three years after his release from prison, he died of meningitis in 1900. But the picture of Dorian Gray is more about a soul reflected in a painting. Not so much about someone trapped in a painting, soul or otherwise. So our search continued. We still looked for some myth or legend or story, anything that might have planted the seeds for all these soul-trapping paintings. For days, the research continued. One obscure Chinese legend cropped up about the painter Wu Daoji. He painted a mural for the emperor Zhuangzong sometime in the mid-1700s CE. It's said he then wandered into the mural, disappeared into a cave in the background, and was never seen again. But that wasn't what we were looking for. So we kept searching for the mythical first cause of people getting trapped in paintings, and then, finally, we turned up something that made everything clear. We found a trapped soul in a painting that helped us understand what had happened. The painting in question was Vincent van Gogh's 1889 painting, Olive Trees. Art historians at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City looked in detail at the painting. And they discovered something amazing. A living being trapped in the painting. A tiny grasshopper, 128 years old, preserved in the paint and stuck to the canvas. By analyzing the insect, they were able to discover a lot about the history of painting. Where the painting occurred, what season, that kind of thing. But it also revealed something very important to us. See, Van Gogh liked to paint outdoors. One of the most difficult parts of painting outdoors is the environment. It's hard to keep your paint and canvas bug and debris free. Van Gogh, rather famously, invented many special little bits and bobs to keep stuff out of his paint. 
But even with all his innovations, he found painting outdoors to be very trying. In letters to his brother Theo, he laments the difficulty of painting in plein air, as it's called, which is French for outside. He complained about picking hundreds of flies off his canvases, about the dust and the sand that spoiled his brush strokes, about how when you carry a fresh painting through a hedge, it gets all scraped up. As much as he loved painting outside, he had to admit that sometimes it was a mistake. And so the lesson. You can take the easy way out. You can profit by feeding folks some clever marketing patter, like the story of a haunted painting in an eBay ad. It's much harder to be true to your art and yourself. And sometimes you end up making a mistake in the process. We don't regret spending days running down a non-existent myth about soul-trapping paintings. We could have done a simple survey of ghost stories, sure, but at least it only cost us a couple of days' work. We didn't end up jailed for gross offenses to Victorian sensibilities, and we didn't have to pick any bugs off our computer screen. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.